The Shelter and Solidarity, a deep dive with artists and activists during this ongoing COVID pandemic. I'm one of your hosts this evening, Joe Ramsey, Zoom casting and live streaming with you here from Dorchester, Massachusetts on the south side of Boston, as we are now well into year two of this Shelter and Solidarity project. One of the goals of this project as it's evolving is to make new connections, coalitions, collaborations with other existing progressive and left projects. And I'm very proud and pleased that we have started to do that with monthly, monthly review, uh, monthly review, uh, the great independent socialist magazine. Um, we have done one show with uh, my co-host, uh, Camilla Vai on progressive media. And now Camilla Vai, the assistant editor of Monthly Review is here tonight with us as a co-host for this very special conversation with Marge Piercy. Cami, it is great to have you uh, on Shelter and Solidarity now as a co-host. Thank you for having me. And thank you, Marge, um, for this very special episode that I'm very much looking forward to. That's right. Tonight we have the, the great Marge Piercy, author of close to 40 books, if not over 45, 40, 45 books. Marge is, and here I read from the uh, the book jacket of her, I believe most, if unless you've turned out another one since last I, I ordered this, her most recent book of poetry, On the Way Out, Turn Off the Light, which I've just finished and highly highly recommend. Marge Piercy is the author of 19 previous poetry collections, a memoir, 17 novels, five nonfiction books, and a book of short stories. Her work has been translated into 23 languages, and she has received many honors, including the Golden Rose, the oldest poetry award in the country. She lives on Cape Cod with her husband, Ira Wood, the novelist, memoirist, community radio interviewer, and essayist, and their four cats, cats which make many Three. I'm so lost sorry. I'm sorry. To, I'm very sorry to hear that. Uh, Marge, you've been an inspiration to so many of us for so long. I'm not going to speak for others, but I just want to say that it is a personally incredibly just an honor and gratifying to have you here uh, on this show. Uh, you've been meaningful, very meaningful to, to me uh, in your work and I'm sure many, many others. Thank you, Marge, for being here tonight. Thank you for having me. Great. Uh, Cammy, Camilla is going to get the questions rolling. Uh, as always here on Shelter and Solidarity, uh, we go roughly an hour, sometimes a little less than that, uh, before, and then we open up, uh, that is to say, with the host and, and guests going back and forth. And in this case, we'll have some readings from, from Marge as well. And then we will open it up to our live audience around that hour mark. So if you do have a, a question or comment that you'd like to make, please indicate in the chat box and our producers will contact you and we will unmute you once we get to that point in the program so we can have a, have a lively uh, discussion uh, at that point. Uh, we do have a lot to get to though, so we'll keep things moving. Over to you, Camilla. Thank you so much. Um, so my first question is actually biographical. Much of your work has focused on, you know, to reference the phrase made popular by the feminism of the late 1960s, the personal as political and the political as personal. You were involved in the women's liberation movement, the civil rights movement, plenty of anti-war activism. Could you just tell us more about ecological, your uh, ecological activities? Could you tell us more about um, your own life and your political radicalization and how this influenced your writing and how did you become a radical? What does this mean to you? I grew up in Center City, Detroit, in a predominantly Black neighborhood at a time when anti-Semitism was very visible all over the place. And Blacks and Jews were always lumped together. Uh, 
and uh, I, I wasn't white till uh, some point uh, in my later adolescence. Jews weren't white in those days. Uh, so we were among the, among the minorities that were kept out of most things. Uh, and in, as I was growing up, I'm 85, I was born in 1936. <clears throat> uh, when I remember the silver shirts, that was with the local fascists on the corner selling their magazines, uh, attacking blacks, Jews, Italians, everybody they didn't like, and of course, radicals, communists, etc. My mother grew up with a father who had gone out of Russia with, with my grandmother under a load of hay. It was a price on his head because he'd been involved in an unsuccessful revolution uh, in Russia. And uh, he was always a radical. His life in the United States was a few steps ahead of the Pinkertons until they murdered him. Uh, my mother was a gut radical. Uh, I don't know if I'm reading the poem about her. Maybe I am. Maybe I am. I don't remember. If I did, it's called for the Nostalgia for What Never Was. My mother loved Trotsky and hated Stalin. I have the poem about that that I think I may read. Uh, you became a radical if you looked around in Detroit. Everything was out in the open. The class war, the what was happening in the unions, uh, the enemy, your class enemies, Ford murdering people on the bridge. I mean, everything went on. There was a sit-down strike in Plymouth. I mean, not Plymouth in Flint. In Flint, everything was obvious. There was the fascists out there. If you walked around in the summer, Father Coughlin came from radios in almost every house. He was a total fascist. So everything was out in the open, and I just observed and responded. Uh, when I was 15, uh, my girlfriend died of a heroin overdose. Her, her pimp had got her on heroin so she couldn't endure what she was going through. Uh, there was a whole lot of things that made things and nothing in my life seemed anything like the, what, I, what people saw on television. And after, I guess my, my mother bought a television set so we could watch the Kefauver and the, in the army hearings, especially the army hearings. She hated McCarthy. So uh, what I saw in the comedies on television or the dramas had nothing to do with my life. Nothing matched. What we read in school had nothing to do with what I saw. So I, you had to think. You had to try to figure it out because it made no sense otherwise. Nothing was, was, it was, as, it was as it was supposed to be. Did that? Yeah, that's, I mean, <laughs> I think so much. I mean, there's I so much. I became a feminist very early because it was very clear that life for women, if you didn't have money, was really for shit. 
I mean, it was your choices in the neighborhood where I grew up either either, either you became a prostitute or you married very early and your husband would probably beat you. Women were, the girls I knew were regularly beaten. Uh, and you might be left with your kids. There wasn't much, and the jobs that were available were shit jobs that paid very little. It wasn't barely enough to live on, though things were cheap then. On the other hand, there was a working class solidarity then that no longer exists. Uh, basically, people would talk about what was going on. They would, you, you know, they, they'd support each other because there wasn't any help coming from anything else or any place else. We hated the cops. I'll read that poem later on, see them, fear them. We knew they were the enemy. They came to, into our neighborhood as an invading force. So how could I not? <laughs> if you think that's what you saw. Yeah, Marge, that's it's so powerful conjuring this this history and this this these memories. Uh, how would you say that uh, the radicalism, the political kind of consciousness that you developed, ended up coming into poetry, poetic form. I mean, how would you describe the kind of the relationship between the kind of radical consciousness that you developed, you know, through your, your upbringing and through the social movements that you were touched by and, and involved with and, and, and creative writing per se? I mean, what was that process like for you? And, and you know, how would you say, I, I mean, I know this is a huge question that people could write, probably are writing dissertations about as, I, as we speak, but you know, how would you say, what are some of the chief forms that you, you, you see the, your kind of radical or your social kind of outlook imbuing your poetry? You know, or what are some of the strategies you use as a poet to try to, to make those kind of ideas and, and perspectives kind of relevant and, and real to readers? And then, and then after maybe if you could answer that question in some way, we'd love to hear a few of these poems. You can show us what you do um, in addition to telling us, but I would love to you know, take this moment to, to hear how you would describe your own poetic practice and how you know how you see that relationship between kind of politics and and the creative writing is as large a question as that is well first of all to write a good political poem you cannot just say you can't the things that people will like it if you put down slogans but it's not a good poem and it won't last and it won't move people who aren't already persuaded uh it, it takes the same craft to write a political poem as it does to write a love poem or a poem about daffodils. <clears throat> that's, that's, it needs as much craft, as much attention to all the aspects of craft. And second, I don't divide up my poetry. To me, it's all one vision. The poems that I write about my family, the poems that I write about my love poems, the poems that I write about my cats, the poems that I write, I live in the woods, the poems that I write about nature and my political poems and my poems, my Judy, my Jewish poems, they're all, to me, they're all of a unit. They're all unified, they're all part of a vision. And I don't really differentiate. Marge, would you like to lay a few of those poems? I know you, you came prepared to read some poems uh, and I, of your of your choice. I'd love, I, I think we'd love to hear a few poems if we could before uh, 
Camilla takes the next question. The poem I always start with is the oldest poem I still read regularly, to be of use. The people I love the best jump into work head first without dallying in the shallows and swim off with sure strokes, almost out of sight. They seem to become natives of that element the black sleek heads of seals bouncing like half-submerged balls. I love people who harness themselves and ox to a heavy cart, who pull like water buffalo with massive patience, who strain in the mud and the muck to move things forward, who do what has to be done again and again. I want to be with people who submerge in the task who go into the fields to harvest and work in a row and pass the bags along, who are not parlor generals and field deserters, but move in a common rhythm when the food must come in or the fire be put out. The work of the world is common as mud, botched to smears the hands, crumbles to dust. But the thing worth doing well done has a shape that satisfies clean and evident. Greek amphoras for wine or oil, Hobie vases and held corn are put in museums, but to know they were made to be used. The pitcher cries for water to carry and a person for work that is real. I love that, Marge. That is- See one of my them, fear them. Growing up in a mostly black neighborhood in Center City, Detroit, we were always scared of the cops. We learned early they were enemies. Here come the Trojans, some kid would yell and we'd all scatter, hide. When girls were arrested, we called it milling. They hurt you to check if you were virgin. We told stories about where our bad girls were sent. Cops did char would charge groups just hanging out, belly cubs swinging. Sometimes a shot. Now cops wear military weapons. Pardon me. Now cops carry military weapons. They wear armor, given a license to kill and rarely convicted. Even more arrogant, trained to use deadly force. Dark skin is enough to brand you criminal. Your house is ready for assault. Your life is worth shit. Abused dogs get more screen time. There's a protest or two, and then something new hits the nightly news. Men win, of, win women of color. Just statistics we whites forget. How has it changed since Klan mobs burn folks alive? Can thousands in the street change our long, bloody history now? Uh, you, you suggested I read a, a sec a section from my novel about the world before before Roe v. Wade, some a direction we seem to be headed back to. Uh, I uh, felt that a couple of poems would work better. A Day in the Life. She's wakened at 4 a.m. Of course, she does not pick up but listens to the answering machine to the male voice promising she will burn in hell. 
At seven, she opens her door. A dead cat is hammered to her porch, brown tabby hit by a car. She hugs her own Duke of Orange. She cannot let him out. She has her car locked in a neighbor's garage, safe from pipe bombs, but she must walk there. She drives to work a circuitous route, never the same way twice. Outside the clinic, three men walk in circles with photos of six-month fetuses. They surround her car. They are forbidden in the parking lot, but the police don't care. They bang on her hood. As she gets out, they bump and jostle her. One thrusts his sign into her face. She protects her eyes. Something hard strikes her back. Inside, she sighs, turns on the lights, the air conditioning, the coffee machine. The security system is always on. The funds for teenage contraception gone into metal detectors. She answers the phone. Is this where you kill babies? The second call, a woman is weeping. The day begins. A girl raped by her stepfather, a harried mother with too many children and diabetes, a terrified teenager who does not remember how it happened, a woman with an injunction against an abuser. All day she takes their calls. All day she checks them in, takes medical histories, holds hands, dries tears, hears secrets and lies and horrors, soothes, continues. Every time a new patient walks in, a tinny voice whispers, is this the one carrying a handgun with an otic weapon with a knife? She sits exposed. She answers the phone. I'm going to cut your throat, you murderer. Have a nice day, she says. A bomb threat is called in. She has to empty the clinic. The police finally come. There is no bomb. The doctor tells her how they are stalking his daughter. Then she goes home to Duke, eats a late supper by the TV. Her mother calls. Her boyfriend comes over. She cries in his arms. He is, she can tell, getting tired of her tears. Next morning, she rises in bed and day falls on her like a truckload of wet cement. This is a true story. This is what I know of virtue. This is what I know of goodness in our time. For two women shot to death in Brookline, Massachusetts. How dare a woman choose, choose to be pregnant, choose to be childless, choose to be lesbian, choose to have two livers or three or none, choose to abort, choose to live alone, choose to walk alone at night, choose to come and go without permission, without leave, without a man. Consider a woman's blood spilled on a desk, pooled on an office floor, an ordinary morning at work, an ordinary morning of helping other women choose to be or not to be pregnant. A woman young and smiling sits at a desk trying to put other women at ease. Large now bleeds from five large wounds, bleeding from her organs, bleeding out her life. A young man is angry at women, women who say no, women who say maybe and mean no, women who won't. Women who do and they shouldn't. If they're pregnant, they are bad because that proves they did it with someone. They did it and should die. 
A man gets angry with a woman who decides to leave him, who decides to walk off, who decides to walk, who decides. Women are not real to such men. They should behave as meat. Such men drag them into the woods and stab them, climb in their windows and rape them. Such men shoot them in kitchens. Such men strangle them in bed. Such men lie in wait and ambush them in parking lots. Such men walk into a clinic and kill the first women they see. In harm's way, meaning in the way of a man who is tasting his anger like a rare steak, a daily ordinary courage doing what has to be done every morning, every afternoon, doing it over and over because it is needed, put them in harm's way. Two women dying because a man chose that they die. Two women dying because they did their job helping other women survive. Two women dead from the stupidity of an ex-altar boy who saw himself as a fetus who pumped his sullen fury automatically into the woman in front of him twice and intended more. Stand up now and say, no more. Stand up now and say, we will not be ruled by crazies and killers, by shotguns and bombs and acid. We will not dwell in the caves of fear. We will make each other strong. We will make each other safe. There is no other monument for them. You want one more? I think we could handle one more and then, then and Camilla will take the next okay. question. This, is, this was written right after the 2020, 20, 20, <laughs> what am I saying? The election four years ago. Dirge for my country. My country, you are hurtling us into a dark morass. In that old war, I understand the Viet Cong better than I understood the Pentagon. Alienated at daily war in the streets and movement lofts against my government. Yet I've held hope at least sometimes that we were pushing hard enough to birth the dream of equality. Step by step with stifled voices, those dealt day by day fresh wounds in their minds, their backs, their cunts, their very skin punished for itself. Moved a step closer to evident selfhood, a step closer to that picnic in the sun of dignity on the grass of survival, our cultures beginning to meld. We seem to be growing up slowly to a willingness to listen to those who don't look like our mirror image. To those we perhaps had feared and turned to boogeymen's shadows, we seem to be almost arriving at something halfway holy and adult. Was it all seeming, all luxury? We're rushing backwards to a war against our best selves. We're sucking hatred, eating hatred for breakfast and lunch, snacking off hatred, fattening on it, bloated with it, We'll dance on the corpse of good ideas. We'll burn the centers like witches. Is this the end of God my country might have done? I wrote that, as I say, right after Trump won the election. And I, won I wasn't wrong. <laughs> you certainly weren't, Marge. Uh, powerful words. Uh, thank you so much for sharing. We hope to hear another reading. If your voice is still holding strong, maybe in, in a few minutes. Right now, yeah. we'll... Pass it back to Camilla. 
Thank you I so much. It was the stuff that went down my throat today when they were grinding away. I had two root canals. Oh my goodness. One is more than enough. I'm so glad you could be here tonight with us, Marge. Camilla? Yeah, I I do a lot of abortion work and clinic defending, and I'm struck by how familiar that is, the, the scenes that you describe. Um, and so my question actually is kind of about intergenerational feminism, really, um, and current conversations about feminism that have changed so much from the context in which you wrote many of your books. Um, and in recent years, there have been some heated debates about the future of feminism, especially between you know, what are called radical feminists and some queer and trans activists. And I just wanted to know, how do you see these present debates shaping the political future? And what does it mean for you to be a, a radical or revolutionary feminist, feminist in a context in which the meaning of feminism is so uh, contested and is evolving so rapidly? Look, most of that is academics. People who made a, make a career out of that. You, when you deal with real organizations of women who aren't in academia, who are trying to fix, pro, help other women or fix problems that exist in their, in their own environment, they're not thinking about those things. They don't give a shit about that. What they care is whether they can get better health care, whether they can make the police respond to domestic violence in a way that's helpful and not violent, whether they can get better health care, cheaper health care, whether they can get possibly get some uh, daycare they can afford for their kids. Uh, if there's, can those kids get any kind of education? Uh, can they get a living wage? Uh, they're the, can they walk down the street at night and be safe and not be terrified when they see a man coming toward them? What These are the problems that women have, and these are the real problems, and it's not making labels about feminism or fighting about, you know. There's a lot of caricature of what the second wave of feminism was like, as there are just as many caricatures about the first wave. The first wave of feminism wasn't just focused on the vote. Elizabeth Cady Stanton was involved with unions, with prisons, with raising of children, with all kinds of issues that we still haven't dealt successfully with. The prison reform she worked for never happened, so forth. I mean, the, look, uh, academia is academia. They can, they can argue with each other. People doing the real work outside are not concerned with that. Yeah, Marge, uh, thank you so much for that. I mean, I think that's very thoughtful. Um, before, you know, coming into today's discussion, I went and I read, you know, all the poems that I could uh, of yours, particularly starting with the ones that have been published at Monthly Review. And uh, I was struck by many of them. I mean, I'm not going to give a, a long list now, but uh, one that, that I was struck by was one of your most recent, actually, just from April of this year, History Comes in Bad Cycles. Uh, I and, have and, that. Yeah, I would love... Um, do you want me to read it now? Uh, well, could I ask the question first, and then maybe we could come to it? I think uh, maybe. Uh, <laughs> so, um, and, and, yeah, but I mean, and I'll just highlight one aspect. I'm not going to read your words as you have made clear you want to read them Please yourself. Don't. <laughs> I won't. 
Um, <laughs> but I would try to do them justice, but I will not do them now. Um, so, and that, I mean, among other, I mean, history comes in bad cycles, expressing many of the concerns and horrors associated with the, the Trump regime, Trumpism, the MAGA phenomenon, and in particular, not exclusively, but in particular, including attacks on and the fear mongering against queer and, and trans people, among others. Um, at the same time, uh, it, you know, it was brought to my attention while we were organizing this show, uh, concerns were, were voiced about a couple of public statements that you have signed on to, you know, years ago, uh, def you know, uh, defending, uh, you know, radical feminism, gender, gender critical feminism. Um, and these have been, you know, I'm sure you're aware, you know, kind of criticized sharply. Now I know you, to some degree, you, you spoke to this a moment ago, but I did want to give you a chance to kind of respond directly to, uh, you know, those who have uh, characterized, you know, uh, those statements as, you know, as transphobic or as otherwise problematic. I wanted to give you a chance, since these are things I was hearing while we were organizing the show, not our original plan, but I definitely wanted to give you a chance to speak to those concerns, which I think some folks seem to be, you know, raising in good faith in communities I'm, I, that touch me, but I, I really wanted to hear your take on it. Um, and you know, give you a chance to, to to speak to your understanding of not only those statements, but just the discourse around uh, that sort of uh, th those sort of public and uh, conflicts. I fully support trans people uh, and uh, any adolescent's right to decide who they are. But I do not like it when trans people attack feminists who are just dealing with gender. Okay, so, you, so your concerns are about the methods that are used to respond to feminist positions that, that, are, that, are, that are seen critically by some folks in, 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 in the, the social movement. Also, the focus on that distracts from women's real situation. Marge, would you read that poem for us that you just that I just alluded to, and then maybe we can. Uh... Uh, history comes in bad cycles. Thank you. This is from just April sure. again. Marge, for those who don't know, is publishing. It seems to be a pub a poem now every month in monthly review. Uh, used to be uh, once in a while. Now it seems to be a very regular occurrence, and just one reason to pick up, you know, one of the longest standing independent socialist magazines we have uh, in the United States. Marge, history comes in bad cycles. I watched the insurrectionists assault the Capitol with Trump flags, anti-Semitic signs, gas masks, guns, and enough angry hatred to kill those they see as enemies. War in the streets, the man in charge summoned with furious lying tweets, urged to action, applauded, hoped they would overthrow the government he had pledged to uphold, all to keep his grasp on power. This is perhaps only the beginning. Hitler too led a failed coup before winning control. It's a cult of the strong man who postures machismo, who stirs up hatred against blacks, Jews, queers, and trans people, immigrants, Muslims, uppity women. Black Lives Matter protesters are gassed, beaten, killed, as were we anti-war groups in my most activist days when I could still lead a march. Those white power folks were gently urged to disperse by police who had watched with pleasure all day. I'm not too old to witness democracy's fall. 
Thank you, Marge. Yeah, I mean, uh, developments continue to. I I want to I want to read another poem. With Please, that. let's let's yeah, let's hear a few more, and then and then. This we'll... is the now. This was after the last election. <laughs> I wake to the possible. Today, for the first time in four years, I go to the computer without dread about what new horror is done or pending. Hope has felt dangerous, remote, unlikely. I dare not to feel it, cradling my old body around its fragile warmth. I want to believe, scarcely dare, looking over my shoulder at those who want to kill people like me. Although it shares the sky with blood, a rainbow gleams. And he's mm. turned out to be a lot more radical than anybody <laughs> many, many years so far. And he can't do everything at once, but he's he's doing his best to try to get to all the bases that have to be touched, all the things that have to be rolled back, all the things that have to go forward, both directions at once. Absolutely, the, the horror and the hope. Um, you know, I mean, I, again, the, so many of your poems conjure, conjure both aspects and so, so, sharply so accessible one thing about your poetry i really really value is that i mean is just its accessibility you know what i mean you seem to really take a kind of small d democratic ethic really very seriously in your poems right i mean the issues may be deep and, and yeah i think exactly that tradition and uh and yet there is a rhythm you know there is a rhythm and a word play that's running through but it doesn't upstage you know the kind of the the reality you know the, the, these kind of true stories in a way that often come through these uh, these poems. I actually wanted to, before we go back to Camilla, to bring in one of our co-producers, Rachel uh, Yarishus uh, Patton. Where's Rachel? Rachel is- Oh, I uh, see Rachel. Uh, the way Zoom works, sometimes you can only see people when you can hear them. But uh, Rachel actually ha has been, I think has some comments on some of the work of yours she's been reading and wanted to relay a, a question before we go back to Camilla. And then again, to the rest of you, we may get to you even by 745, 7.50, uh, we'll be bringing you in. So if you have questions, comments, words that you'd like to share with Marge and with the rest of us, please do um, indicate that in the chat box and we'll call on you and unmute you um, at that point. Rachel? Hi, Marge. Um, thank you so much for being here. Um, so I was reading a poem for the first um, time, one of your like most famous works, Barbie doll. Um, and I thought it was really interesting how even though it was like very specific to the time in which he wrote it, it's also so relevant now. Um, and I think it can be, I can see it's relevant even like now among people who have like different relationships to their what gender. What are you talking than, about? Um, Barbie doll. Oh, Barbie doll. <laughs> Yeah, sorry if that wasn't didn't come out clearly. Um, and I was just wondering, is there any difference between how you wanted um, your early work to be understood in that historical moment and what you want people to, especially younger readers reading for the first time um, to get out of that work now? I'm not sure what you're asking. I, th I know that, uh, that young people relate to that poem because Body shaming still is still prevalent. In fact, maybe it's even worse now. I um, I was just wondering, basically, is there anything specific that you think um, younger audiences 
um, that you want younger audiences to understand about like the historical context in which some of that earlier um, work was written. Like some things have changed and some things really haven't. Look, a poem belongs to the reader once it's published. People are take from the poem what they want and they take very different things. People are always asking me if students were, every week students ask me, does she really die at the end? And I say, that's up to you. Very interesting. Yeah, the, the reader's role here. Uh, crucial, again, if you're producing work into the world, right, you, you put it in people's hands to, to use as a tool in some, in some way that's, that's up to them. Um, Camilla, I think you have the next question. Yeah, I think this touches on um, one of the last poems you read, I Wake to the Possible, which is, there's so much to be, to despair about in the current world, but I also wanted to hear what, what gives you hope? Well, the fact that Trump is out, though he's not gone, not nearly. And besides, I take a long view. I never forget my grandmother's choice was to continue eating, starving, facing pogroms. She had no choice at all. She had very little education. She came to the United States with, with my grandfather. Uh, they lived in poverty. She had 11 children. She had so few choices. My mother was, had to leave school halfway through the 10th grade in order to go to work as a chambermaid. Her choices were to continue working at no pay, low paying jobs that she could get uh, or marry. So she did that three times. She, every time she married a working class guy, she thought things would be better. It never was. I decided I wanted to go to college. That was my choice. My parents were totally opposed to it. Nobody in our family had gone to college since my grandfather, uh, who was trained as a doctor. Uh, and oops, I've lost my train of thought. Uh, basically, I lost my train of thought. What was I answering? Hope. Oh, so uh, going to college, I had many more possibilities. And women now, as long as Roe v. Wade holds, have possibilities I didn't have. When I got pregnant at 18, I had to abort myself. And I almost died. I almost bled to death. Uh, so there, they have even more possibilities. There are more jobs open. So I just take a long view. When I look back to my great-grandparents' life, my great-grandfather died in a ditch machine-gunned with all of, his, all of his congregants lying on top of each other. I have to take a long view. I've, I've, I've partly learned that from the Vietnamese that I met, the, the, the people in the Liberation Army and so forth. Uh, they take a long view. I learned to take a long view. 
which doesn't mean I don't get upset. Oh, isn't Trump? I would, I don't, I may have developed an ulcer. <laughs> My stomach would get so upset. It's better now. There's so much here, Marge. Um, I really want to make sure we get to hear a couple more poems, uh, if we could, uh, before we kick things off for Q&A. And I know there'll be some rich discussion there. A lot of folks who have some things they want to share. Um, I think we'll, just to put our, our we have Debbie Notkin here and, and Mark Soderstrom looking at you in the queue here and perhaps others as well. Uh, Marge, do you have a couple more poems that you'd like to lay on? I mean, I, I, I did have a question. I did have one question I wanted to tag onto this, which which is that you know again I folk I've followed monthly review for you know for decades since I was I mean really cut my radical teeth on it as a child it was like the one radical publication in, in the household growing up in the uh, suburbs of Massachusetts and um, you know I'm kind of curious what your hope is when you you give a poem to a place like monthly review a place where you know it's likely to be read by you know people on the left socialists people who are in community with socialists you know. I know that you said you don't divide your poetic work ultimately, but do you have particular hopes for, for what poetry can do with and for the left or the socialist left in this country? And then if you have an answer to that, then I just love to hear a couple poems and we'll, and we'll start getting a Q&A unless Cammie has something she wants to add. Where's Candy? Oh, Camilla? That's, <laughs> I thought you said Candy. I go by. Sorry, Cammie, Camilla, sorry, yeah. Um, basically, uh, I, until COVID, I was performing my poems a lot to, ver to many mixed audiences, hoping to alter people's consciousness at least a little bit. Uh, and a lot of my poems are published all over the place. So, you know, I, I, that's basically... I was a good organizer, but at some point I realized I was reaching a lot more people with the writing than I was with my organizing. So I began to put the writing first and organizing second though I, until I couldn't do it anymore. I continued organizing until maybe, uh, until basically I went to Detroit and a graduate student asked me a question as we were, Oh, as I was stepping off a curb. So what is your writing process? Writing process is I go to the computer, I write. But I stepped off the curb looking at her and without listening. I twisted my ankle, tore a tendon. Nothing can be done about it at my age. So I can't, I have trouble walking anymore. I can't even march in demonstrations anymore. But I can still write. I can still perform my poems, usually not after a dental, two and a half hour dental appointment. Okay. Do you have a couple that you'd like to lay on us? Your voice seems to be holding up strong. We Again, we really appreciate, for those joining late, Marge actually had a two, more than a two hour uh, dental appointment before this, but it still kept her commitment to us, which again is, a, is an act of solidarity itself. Uh, Marge? The great denial. <clears throat> Somewhere a man is ranting, a man used to power and mad with it. He's the one he loves, so how can others resist, deny, 
fail to carry out his sacred wishes. Somewhere a man is denouncing the world that is because it doesn't reflect him, doesn't serve him any longer. He is at his most dangerous as the power he wielded slips away in winds of change, like lifting smog. The man is furious with everyone, including his cohorts. They didn't do enough for him. They are useless scarecrows now. We want him gone, but he isn't. What more damage will he manage in the storm of death in which he imprisoned us? And then here's a poem for all people who are politically active. Report of the 14th subcommittee on convening a discussion group. This is how things begin to tilt and to change, how coalitions are knit from strands of hair, of barbed wire twine, knitting wool and gut, how people ease into action, arguing each inch. But the tedium of it, it's watching granite erode. Let us meet to debate meeting, the day, the time, the length. Let us discuss whether we will sit or stand or hang from the ceiling or take it lying down. Let us argue about the chair and the table and the chairperson and the motion to table the chair. In the room, fog gathers under the ceiling and thickens every brain. Let us form committees, spawning subcommittees, all laying little moldy eggs of reports. Under the gray fluorescent sun, they will crack to hatch scuttling lizards of more committees. The Pliocene gathers momentum and fades. The earth tilts on its axis. More and more snow may fall each winter. A new ice age is pressing the glaciers onward over the floor. We watch the wall of ice advance. We're evolving into mollusks, barnacles clinging to wood and plastic, metal and smoke, while the stale and flotsam-laden tide of rhetoric inches up the shingles and dawdles back. This is true virtue, to sit here and stay awake, to listen, to argue, to wade on through the muck, wrestling to some momentary small agreement, like a pinhead pearl prize from a dragon oyster. I believe in democracies. I believe there's blood in my veins, but oh, oh, in me lurks a tyrant with a double-bladed axe who longs to swing it wide and shining, who longs to stand and shriek, you shall do as I say, pig bastards. No more committees, but only picnics and orgies and dances. I have spoken, so be it forevermore. If you never felt like that, you haven't been in enough meetings. Marge, could you please repeat the title of the, the poem on the committees? I loved it so much. Let me see how I toss them on the floor afterwards. Oh, report on the 14th subcommittee on convening a discussion group. Great title, great title. <laughs> okay, just one moment. I find one. Illegal with only hope. The mother imagines a few more steps, another push across the minefield, just one more night hiding in rank bushes she can carry her child across the border into some kind of safety. Anything better than what she flees, hauling her child through the fields of hell. 
She has a wound on her leg, untended, unbandaged, bleeding now and then when weeds, branches brush it. She has a deep wound inside. The wan face of her older child is a life drained from it with blood from the blast that tore his flesh apart. The dusty body of her husband fallen into a ditch, the ditch where she huddled, holding tight the still living child who is all she can imagine of any future. So she slogs onward toward that invisible border where mothers can keep their children safe, perhaps in a world on fire. And I'll read the last poem at this point, though I have a bunch more. This is called U period S period, which is both US and us. We force children to go to school. Schools are shooting galleries. We force children to experience death. Don't go to a concert, you might die. Don't go to the mall, you might die. Don't go to pray, you might die. Don't go to the movies, you might die. And above all, don't go to college, you might die. Every bullet sprayed is money for some corporation. Every child who dies is profit for the NRA. Every murder brings contributions to senators, congressmen, governors, and a president who couldn't care less. That was written under Trump. How much do any of us care if the child bleeding out is not ours? We live in a gun-happy country. Some grow richer. Some never come home. Some never grow up. Oops, what happened? We're, oh, we're here. We're here. <laughs> it vanished for a moment. Thank you so much, Marge, for helping every reader that your work touches to, to grow up in new ways and to expand their consciousness and understanding. Uh, this country clearly needs needs more, more of it. Cami, uh, I think you're going to call on some questions. Do we have some questions in the queue, I think? Uh, the number of folks? Great. Um, I think, Debbie, you had a, a something prepared. Maybe you, you want to go first? Oh, I think so. You're unmute. Let's unmute her. Yeah, sorry, I, I tried to unmute her, but someone else was beat me to it, so I muted her. Sorry, Debbie. <laughs> okay. So I had I had written something that was a little bit formal, but I've just been listening and thinking, and I think that I will just um, take a look at my notes, but just speak. Um, and I'm I'm here because I've spent most of my life working in science fiction and fantasy, and I think that people who talk about Marge's work frequently talk about the mainstream novels and the historical novels and the poetry and sometimes the, the two really extraordinary science fiction and speculative fantasy novels get ignored. So oh no, They've, uh, The Woman on the Edge of Time has been translated into innumerable languages. And, so, and I'm so uh, glad to hear uh, that. CBS streaming bought the rights to, to have some sort of series about it, which I will probably never watch. Well, that should be interesting. I hope it's good. Um, I will bet on it. So but you hope, you always hope. Of course you hope. And, and it would be great. could be good. Some of them have been good. And he, she, and it uh, got one, the, of course, the prize of the best science fiction novel of the year in, in Great Britain. Uh, and I'm surprised there's not more interest in that for, for anything visual. 
Uh, but that also is having a renaissance because it's so relevant now. Oh my God, so unfortunately. It's so true. Relevant. One of the treats of being asked to be here tonight is that I'm reread both Women on the Edge of Time and He, She, and It and was reminded of the things I love about both of them. So I'll just say quickly for people who haven't read them, Women on the Edge of Time, which was published in 1976, is a novel about a um, Mexican-American woman living in New York City, an immigrant woman um, who is has a very difficult life and is sometimes uh, in a mental hospital for really unreasonable behaviors like trying to beat up her niece's pimp who's beating up her niece, which is obviously a sign of mental illness. Uh, but she also has a kind of a fantastic magical connection with someone who can pull her into the future, into a, a I would say a near utopia called Matapoiset. And so the book is the contrast between uh, Consuelo Ramos's life in 1970s New York and what she sees in this near utopian future. And there are two, three or four things that I just love about it. One is that Ramos is a genuine protagonist of color. She doesn't just have brown skin over a white attitude. She lives in a Chicano neighborhood. The book treats with the difference between how Mexicans and Puerto Ricans see each other. There's a stunning moment where a teacher, who, she's in grade school and a teacher is really abusing her to get her to pronounce English quote correctly, close quote, while calling her consulo. So, you know, what, who, who pronounces what correctly? Um, the way that mental illness and mental illness patients are treated is very strong. And the way that the future is treated is very strong. And one of the things I love about the book is that when Ramos is uh, brought to this utopian community, she doesn't like it. She doesn't trust it. She thinks the kids are abandoned rather than being independent. She thinks that the love relationships are trivial rather than the way the people who live there see them as, as free. She doesn't like the way they deal with death. And she is especially grossed out and disgusted by the fact that their fetuses grow externally in mechanical breeding centers. And that's something, of course, many feminists have called for and some have demanded. But uh, this woman from 1976 basically starts out thinking it's gross and disgusting, which I, I really appreciate the way that it's not just oh, it's utopia, here we are, it's wonderful here. But it, the book treats with the complexities of what, how what we expect can be different from, from, what we, from what we long for, I guess I would say. And then uh, Marge was just saying something about He, She, and It. He, She, and It is a 1992 book that is a, a take on both um, the, the traditional golem stories and also Frankenstein. Um, unlike the utopian future of Women on the Edge of Time, this is a dystopian future. Uh, sunlight is toxic, toxic radiation. Humans with any privilege at all live in domes that protects them from the sun. 
and only go outside in protective suits. Um, the people who can't get into domes live in a, a megalopolis called the Glop, which is a horrifying, dangerous place. Uh, the kind of place that people would know. It's also the, the place where hope and change can arise. Yes. Yes, very, very much true. And I'm, not that I would ever argue with the author of the book. Um, it's a book where the main protagonists are Jewish, which is not something you see very often in fiction or science fiction. And the thing that mattered the most to me about He, She, and It when I read it first was that it was the first thing I had ever read that said, that advised women to center their lives on work and make their romantic relationships secondary to work and it's something I've quoted a million times in the intervening years. It's a really important way of thinking about women's lives. And I think that's really what I have to say, except read, read both books, they'll make, you, they'll make you think and they'll make you happy. Thanks, Debbie. Um, so I'm gonna call on, we have two questions from the audience here with us now. And then maybe I'll give some time for March to come in and then I'll read some things we got over Facebook. Um, so the first question is from Mark and then it's gonna be Eleanor. Oh, thank you so much. It's a real honor and privilege to be here in conversation this evening. And we've been talking a great deal about, about your poetry. I'm so glad that Debbie brought up uh, the science fiction novels because I'm a science fiction and speculative fiction reader. And both those novels, He, She, and It, and Women on the Edge of Time were very important to me um, and to my, my polit politics. Um, and, and I'm curious particularly about your thoughts on Women on the Edge of Time. Uh, before COVID, I was at a meeting and I talked about Women on the Edge of Time and two people had just read it. Uh, I invited friends to come to this meeting this evening, and one wrote back and said, I just read Women on the Edge of Time. Uh, I took a women's studies class this winter, and Women on the Edge of Time was assigned. And so often science fiction and even political fiction are really ephemeral. They don't, they don't last for 50 years. And I'm wondering if you have thoughts about what is it about Women on, women on the Edge of Time that has really kept it as part of a vital conversation and continuing of, of its continuing in its political importance and significance to people. And I'm wondering what are your thoughts about why and how that that how it continues to function in that role. Uh, I know it meant a lot to me, but I'd love to hear what you think about it. Well, it came out of a lot of ideas that had come out of the 60s and early, 70, and early 70s, and I managed to embody them. The skill of writing science fiction, as I said, writing political poetry and poetry about daffodils or da daffodils or a lover who left you <clears throat> takes exactly the same craft. I am a, no I'm a very good novelist. I've written amazing novels. And it's the same skill, the same craft, the same hard work, the same research. I do a lot of research on novels. When I wrote He, She, and It, I read everything. I read the science. I learned to read the science of, of climate change. 
I wanted to understand it. And if anything, the only thing I got wrong was how fast it's happening. I took a long, I thought it would take longer. It's happening as you watch. Uh, and uh, I think that a lot of the ideas that we produced in all the various movements, I was drawing on the American Indian movement. I was drawing on black power, I was drawing on the, uh, you know, everything in SDS, I was drawing on the women's, the beginning of the women's movement, women's liberation has developed. I was drawing on all these and the ideas we produced are still relevant. We still haven't achieved what we imagined could happen. So that's why it's still relevant because while certain things have improved, uh, many things haven't. Economically, we've, we're worse than we were. Real actual wages have gone down. Unions have been busted uh, so that they don't have the power they had. There's a the econ economic situation, the, the gulf, the gap between the rich and the rest of us is grown and grown and grown, including through COVID. So, I think it's, that's why things are, the ideas in it are still relevant because so many of those problems haven't been solved. Our, and in fact, some of them have gotten worse. Our next question is from Eleanor. Oh, hold on, someone has yeah. to. Yeah, yeah sorry. Hi, Marge. I Hello, want to. We're good. Lovely to see you. You look great in your red dress. Are you fully vaccinated yet? So vaccinated, yes. Both so I just wanted to take this opportunity to thank you, and in particular for uh, for He, She, and It, which I think was really the first novel, first dystopian novel or a treatment in fiction of the gathering dangers of catastrophic climate change. And I think- And that, the power of corporations and corporations becoming the, being far more important than government in controlling the world. And I hadn't seen that. It's a really prescient book, a prescient book. And like so many great books, you know, I think the artists do us the favor of seeing the future and seeing the present uh, as it really is, and the fundamentals of it, and and laying it bare, and that's a tremendous gift. And I'm so happy that you're published regularly in monthly review, and we can read you every month, and and so can many many other people. So thank you for all of that over all these years. It's great to see you, uh, Eleanor and Jeff, and I go back decades and decades and decades into the anti-war movement. That, that's so great. It's great to, to have this shelter and solidarity space. Again, we're here, you know, two Thursdays every every month. Um, and it's really great to have people actually connecting and reconnecting and, and through the space because we do aspire for it to be a, you know, to serve people and, and, and help people connect in that way. Uh, we have another question uh, coming up from from Michael. Uh, Michael, are you there? And then I think we're going to uh, hear some of the, the questions we've got from Facebook and the chat box and some others. 
And then I'm going to share a little anecdote in a moment uh, to honor Marge as well. Uh, Michael, you're up. Yeah, sorry about that. I didn't realize I wasn't uh, unmuted yet. I'm, I'm curious about the land between Egypt and Syria and the state of feminism in there and uh, how the in right- where? I'm trying to- The land between Egypt and Syria. Uh, I don't know anything about the Middle East. I've never been there. Okay. Well, the question's basically uh, feminism in the Middle East, so. I'm afraid I, I, you have to ask a woman from the Middle East. Fair enough. Okay. And so I think it varies enormously from country to country. The only one I know much about are the Kurds because I've been in contact uh, with some of the feminist women there and a very strong feminism in, in, among the Kurds. They, them I know about because they contact me and I've sent them things they want. Thank you, Michael, for that. And thank you, thank you, Marge. Um, and, um, you know, I, I wanted to, speaking of internationalism and, and feminism in your work, I wanted to share one little anecdote before we bring, maybe bring in the Facebook uh, questions. Cami uh, can maybe uh, relay them. Um, I first heard of you, Marge, um, in 2003, when I was a graduate student at Tufts University and was one of the organizers of Tukawi, the Tufts Coalition Opposed to War in Iraq, uh, which was going pretty strong for a few years. We actually had, I know another old comrade of yours, Howard Zinn, uh, as well as Noam Chomsky to come and give speeches and try to build the mass movement before that war started and then in opposition to it after the United, I shouldn't say started, of course, the United States had been bombing Iraq for decades prior to the formal invasion. But my graduate, my then graduate director, Motomita Roy, who wanted to be here with us tonight, um, got up at our Iraq war moratorium where we got hundreds of people on campus to not go to class and instead converge in various spaces for panels, discussions, protests, and then a kind of readings and testimonials in Goddard Chapel at the top of that hill that Tufts University sits upon. Um, and she read The Low Road. Motomita read The Low Road. Uh, to us, to a, a packed Goddard Hall. And I just remember being so profoundly moved by that poem. And again, the way it, it kind of links a kind of state of despair, the despair and hopelessness of isolation, but with that utopian promise of collectivity, right? And that an army of our, of our sort of people once assembled could meet an army. And, that, but, and then in addition to that, 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 that the, the promise of that army wasn't just some abstraction, but, it, but it, it literally starts with one person at a time, right? And building relationships and connections and, and ultimately a kind of a, a different kind of collectivity that way. And I just wanted to say that, you know, on this show, I think I said it before the show, before we started recording, it just was such a profoundly moving moment for me. I mean, the very fact that your work can be used is literally work that can be used and put to use in the actual concrete context of social movement building is I think a great tribute to your work and its style as well as its content. And that is a poem that has never left me. And I have passed it on to just about every student that I've been able to when I've had an appropriate class and, and really what class wouldn't it be appropriate for. Uh, I'm not trying to ask you to read it right now unless you want to or later maybe before we wrap up and if you don't you can totally reject it but if everyone here could read I The Low Road. If, if, I don't if, know if I have if it. If she doesn't have it everyone please read that poem because I think it, it, is, it is very much a. Profoundly... Okay I got it. Okay got it. can we go with that folks? Camilla is that all right? We'll go, we'll go with that and then we'll we'll take the the last round of questions and give Marge another chance to respond. Marge? 
But anyway, thank you for that work, which just, again, has never left the me. The lower road. What can they do to you? Whatever they want. They can set you up. They can bust you. They can break your fingers. They can burn your brain with electricity, blur you with drugs so you can't walk, can't remember. They can take your child, wall up your lover. They can do anything you can't stop them from doing. How can you stop them? Alone, you can fight, you can refuse, you can take what revenge you can, but they roll over you. Two people can keep each other sane, can give support, conviction, love, massage, hope, sex. Three people are a delegation, a committee, a wedge. With four, you can play bridge and start an organization. With six, you can rent a whole house, eat pie for dinner with no seconds, and hold fundraising parties. A dozen make a demonstration, a hundred fill a hall. A thousand have solidarity in your own newspaper, 10,000 power in your own paper, 100,000 your own media, 10 million your own country. It goes on one at a time. It starts when you care to act, when you dare to act. It starts when you do it again after they said no. It starts when you say we and know who you mean and every day you mean one more. Oh, thank you, Marge. That's what that that's is. in uh, the hunger moon. Thank you so much. We also we have one more question from this this crew, um, Dr. Kibibi. Thank you. <laughs> I am so sorry for joining everyone so late, but I, oh, it's been crazy. But I am so happy to be here and to meet you virtually. And one of your early novels, Going Down Fast, um, you know, I find your works are very prophetic. And you're like a, a woman ahead of your time. And even with that particular book where you dealt with what we call gentrification today. You know, well, it was visible. It yeah. was visible in, in Boston and I, I mean, in Chicago, and I came to understand who was. And that's my question. I want to know what inspired you to even talk about that back in 1969, early 70s. I, I was working as a secretary. I had walked out of my first marriage to a French physicist. Uh, I was very poor. Uh, I, I had a job at, uh, for, there was this research project at the University of Chicago that was interviewing people. Now, they didn't see gentrification the way I did. They saw improvement, but I was reading all, uh, I was transcribing all the interviews. And so I saw the gut stuff and that is what it came out of. I understood that. And also, at that point, uh, Hyde Park was multiracial. Was multi and you, the, there was a lot of political activity involving both whites and blacks. And the university didn't like that. And so they managed to, gen to gerrymander, essentially. They, they took over and started demolition. And they essentially destroyed the, the unity. 
And so I was very involved with that. I'd grown up in a predominantly black neighborhood and I had black friends there and I could see what was happening. And I'd been, I was involved in civil rights. That was my, probably my first larger involvement. I'd been politically active in, in high school, in college, but this was the first thing that went beyond small groups. Core at that time. I broke with them later after their support of Johnson. Uh, I want to acknowledge uh, doc, Dr. Uh, Kibby Mac Shelton, actually, uh, who's uh, you know who just asked that question and jo joined us. I'm so glad you 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 were able to make it. Uh, one of my UMass Boston colleagues uh, and uh, the chair of Africana Studies at UMass Boston. Uh, just you know and uh, you know and just just great to see you and and a few other UMass Boston colleagues on on this. Uh, on this call tonight. Thanks for being here. Uh, back to Camilla. Yes, I just want to read one of the questions we received over the, the Facebook. Um, I'm not sure who it's from, I guess anonymous. Um, it says, I love Marge Piercy and read Braided Lives while in college at the University of Michigan. I was so thrilled to learn that Marge went there too. Question, did Yiddish writers influence you? And if so, how? Who? Yiddish writers. Oh, oh, I, I, my grandmother spoke Yiddish to me, but it was many families I was supposed to speak English to her, to, to help her with her English. Uh, I don't think at that point in time when I was in college, I'd read any Yiddish writers. It wasn't until years later. Uh, but I was very influenced by women's shtetl culture, my grandmother. Uh, see, I, I, we lived in this little asbestos shack, basically, and there were, I slept with my grandmother. It wasn't a, quite a room, it was partly hallway, uh, but we shared a bed. She spent half the year with us, and she told me all these stories of the golem and, uh, you know, Dibbicks and all sorts of things, and a lot of, of women's lore. Women's, uh, and I would go to show with her. And I didn't mind it behind the Mahitsa, the curtain. I, because the women all fussed over me. And instead of it being in Hebrew, it was in Yiddish, so I could follow the prayers and so forth. So I was very close to my grandmother. Uh, she, was, she was a storyteller. Uh, one of the things, way I learned about viewpoint is uh, I was also close to my Aunt Ruth, who was halfway in age between my mother and me. My mother was 44 when she had me. You think that's late? My grandmother had the last of her 11 children when she was 53. When I reached that age, I thought, holy shit, she, had a, she was dealing with a baby. <laughs> Anyhow, uh, so I was more influenced by women's stella culture than I was by the books that mostly men wrote. Thank you so much. We have another post um, from Sandra on Facebook, some more well wishes, which I'm feeling very moved by all these, these reconnections during this episode. Um, Sandra says, thank you, thank you, thank you. My husband, Peter Zimmels, told me he worked with you on the literary magazine at University of Michigan. That impressed me. 
Your writing had excited me and reassured me for years before I met him. Wishing you well and thank you again. Uh, I would like to ask her who the which editor that was. I mean, the co-editor was Eric Lindblom, and uh, but it obviously isn't him because he was married to somebody who is now dead. But Peter Peter Zimmels. I might be pronouncing Peter. that. I'm sorry, Peter Zimmels, Z I M E L S. Oh, it sounds slightly familiar. I don't think it was somebody I knew well, but I think I knew who he was. Yeah, we have another question just came in, actually took the words out of my mouth. What are you, I mean, a lot, of, a lot of times people, I think, put writers on a kind of pedestal as if, you know, they just write, but they don't read. You know, it's clear that you do research. I'm, I'm curious, Marge, I mean, what are, this is actually a question, a question comes from, um, from uh, why Pat here in the, in the chat box. What are you reading now? Um, I'm reading manuscripts written by the poets that are in my every every year, though I couldn't do it last year. I do in June uh, a juried intensive poetry workshop. And uh, it's a craft workshop and it really does take people to a higher level, even people who publish books. And I'm reading the, I require, they submit five poems, no information about themselves. I don't care if they're 17 years old or 85 like me. Uh, they, I look at five poems and decide they're, they can go into the workshop. Then I require 15 poems that they want to work on. And that's what I'm reading at present. and I can't read anything else. <laughs> Well, until I go through them. That's priorities, you know, that's, that's, I'm sure you're, you're, uh, the authors, the writers really appreciate the, the attention you must bring to well, their Well, I annotate the 15 poems and we have, that's what our basis of the works of the conference is on. And then I give them their poems back with my annotations, as well as what I say during the conference. So they have a basis. And with 15 poems, I can often figure out their strengths and weaknesses and what right. they should work on. All right, seems like a good sample. Speaking of poets, um, uh, poet comrades uh, here, we have a friend of the show, Raymond Nat Turner is with us. Raymond, for many of you who've been following Shelter and Solidarity, has been a regular presence in many of our arts and resistance uh, shows. He's, a, he's an author, uh, frequently published at, at Black Agenda Report and Dissident Voice. And he's he's uh, he's here with he's been listening tonight and he has some some words to share. He's right? blank. He's Raymond, blank. He, he's yeah. I don't know if he has his camera working, but I hopefully his audio is there. Raymond, are you there? Yeah. I'm, I can I am I audible? Oh yeah, we hear you loud and clear. Okay. I'd like to see you. You you will um, that 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 will happen um, once I come out of the witness protection program. I guarantee oh, it. Uh, anyway, Ms. Piercy, it's a real pleasure to um, finally see you and um, meet well, you <laughs> virtually. Um, I must say that uh, for 10 years, I shelved a lot of your books and um, also Sue Grafton's uh, books, uh, A is for Alibi, B is for Burglary, and that kind of thing. And um, so... I can say that I have a new super shiro tonight. I found you, and if you can recommend one of your books to 
jump into one of your poetry books to jump into. That would be great. And Why don't you read the either the Hunger Moon, which is a, a collect a selected poems, or yeah. the newest one on the way out? Turn off the light. Okay. Turn Thank off you. the way out. Turn off the light. Okay. Thank you. Thank you much. Great, Camilla. Do we have anything else that's come in uh, we, in in our textual uh, media here? Uh, supplementing. We have a question from Nicole from Chicago. Nicole asks, "I wonder what Marge Piercy thinks working class and poor women in the U in the U.S. can do to make art or write, given the declining economic conditions, and who is impacted the most, and the realities of their lives." In short, what might inspire and help working class and poor women who want to make art but are seriously constrained because of economics, when still so many women cannot have a room of their own because they work three jobs and are paid and unpaid, et cetera? It's, it's sort of impossible. It's the same reason why a lot of women can't be politically active, because the economy has forced them down into subsistence if they even get that. Uh, as I said earlier, the, the real wages have diminished and prices have constantly gone up. You just went a little dark. There, that's better. We couldn't see you for a minute and you're so pretty, why have to look at you? Uh, what, I, what I think is that it's sort of impossible how can you possibly find the time if you're working three jobs? How can you find the time to do anything? All the things, eat healthy. Where are you supposed to eat healthy? When in, in many neighborhoods, there are no place you can get fresh food. You might have to walk or if you have a car, drive, you know, a mile to even to get to a supermarket. How are you supposed to stay healthy? There's no time to exercise. If you have children, you have no time at all for anything. There's no daycare that's affordable. Things have gotten much worse. In, as we get less money, things get much worse. And as the rich get so much richer, such a huge control of the economy. We're, when you're, I grew up poor and we're dispensable. We don't count anymore. Uh, I have a poem that I don't have in front of me right now. This is about how there are no, no, there are no poor anymore. Politicians almost never talk about the poor. They talk about the shrinking middle class, but they ignore where the shrinking middle class is going. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's power powerful reality here, right? I mean, it's art. It's not, not all problems will art solve, right? I mean, even as art has its place here. And I think, you know, it's a very grounding um, reminder of the, the context that so many people are, are facing, including people who can't be on a program like this right now because they have to work that second or third shift or they don't have internet access or a, you know, a device to access this, this Zoom cast. Um, all, this, all this stuff with kids at home uh, is trying to learn uh, remotely. An awful lot of them don't have a decent 
way of seeing what they're supposed to be studying. I mean, there's like this assumption everybody is, everybody has a computer. I mean, when the library shut down in Wellfleet, a lot of elderly people lost and lost our access to the internet because they went to the library. We had a whole row of computers and they were always occupied. That's how people got their email. A lot of, of older people as well as younger people are poor and they, you know, they don't have, they can't afford a computer. They can't afford internet. They can't afford having a car. I, I, the, the, the novel that, I, that the, in New York is not interested in that I'm about to start trying small presses on, uh, The House at Hope's End, is a lot about elderly abuse. I, I worked, uh, I volunteered at the uh, senior center for 12 years, and I know a lot about old age poverty in places like this where the poor are invisible because some are people who have a lot of money, build huge houses and think that that's the town. Our food pantry is very heavily used. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. The ways that this pandemic has isolated people is just, it, it's, you know, it's made lives really difficult. Um, I also, Want to just make sure that we have no other questions that I might have missed. I think that's it. Um, thank you so much, Marge, um, for this wonderful conversation. I was wondering if you would do the honors of maybe closing the night with one last poem, if you like. Yep, I'm just trying. Okay, I'm going to read two. One is the one I referred to earlier, nostalgia for what never was. My mother hated Stalin, but loved Trotsky. She had no party affiliation, no friends with whom to talk politics. It was only me to listen. Maybe it was because Trotsky was Jewish, I don't know. Maybe her father, the lefty organizer, murdered by Pinkertons, liked Trotsky. All gone in the fog of unknowing, yet to this day I can sing the international. I have nostalgia for old left songs. I can remember when revolutions seemed possible, before Reagan taught working people to hate the poor, before Clinton gave the party to Wall Street, before the right got power and gerrymandered, suppressed people of color to keep control. In this time, socialists is an insult and official murderers thrive. And then the last poem I'll read is Call to Action. It's only a short life before, between a pale dawn and a garish sunset. It's only a short life, why not use it? What we ignore comes back to bite us in the ass. What we fail to do, rots breeding maggots. We are covered in lies so it's hard to see, hard to breathe deeply. We say, why were we chosen to struggle when the task is rock heavy? Turn the TV to a cartoon, go out for fast food, bar the door, sleep tight. The assaults in the street aren't aimed at you yet. Why bother to be bothered? 
We were born in bad times when murder is patriotic, hatred a golden banner. What can we do? Something's more than nothing. Pick up a rock, a mic, your cell, a painted sign. It's only a short life. Why not use it? Thank you, Marge. The, uh, the silent applause on the other side of muted Zoom screens is, is visible. I'm posting a heart for those who, I don't know if you can see that at home, those watching this later. Marge, that is just a powerful poem and I just can't think of a better words, better chosen words to, to, to wrap up this, this episode of Shelter and Solidarity. Um, you've, put, you've helped us put this 90 minutes, I think, to very good use tonight. And that word it was the first poem and the last poem that you read both feature that uh, that concept. It's so crucial. Um, thank you for being here, Camilla. Thank you for being a co-host, prep uh, on Shelter and Solidarity. Uh, take a bow. No, I mean I don't know. We can only hear you, only see you when we hear you. I think so. Say something. <laughs> um, anyway, um, I want to you know again thank all the folks that make Shelter and Solidarity possible. Um, the show would not be possible without the SNS production team. That includes not only myself, but Linda Liu, Kira Mudliar, Seren Mudliar, Rachel Yarishas, Pat Patton, Tim Sheard, and Mark Soderstrom. We generally hold two Thursday evening shows per month, and you can find all of our past episodes as well as some of our upcoming episodes at shelterandsolidarity.org. That's shelterandsolidarity.org. Uh, also on our YouTube channel, Shelter and Solidarity, which we do implore you to follow, like, and share the content here on Facebook, uh, on Facebook, our Facebook page, Shelter and Solidarity as well. We have some exciting shows coming up, one of them set, and we're setting our June plan as we speak. Thursday, May 20th, another Thursday night, Thursday, May 20th, we will have a show entitled Invisible No Longer, Confronting Anti-Asian Racism and Building Community Response, featuring guests Michael Liu, another UMass Boston figure, and Kent Wong from joining us from the West Coast. That'll be co-hosted by SNS co-producer Linda Liu and Alice Liu, no relation, but another uh, an activist with plenty to say on this topic. Uh, finally, I'd like to thank our co-sponsors, the Community Church of Boston, a free community for the study and practice of universal religion, Encuentro Cinco, affectionately known as E5, a movement-building project in downtown Boston, Hardball Press, a leading publisher of labor and social justice stories for adults and children. You can find them at hardballpress.com. That's hardballpress.com. Also the Liberty Tree Foundation, an organization serving the democracy movement and the democratic revolution. And last but not least of our co-sponsors, Socialism and Democracy, a scholarly journal that brings together the worlds of scholarship and activism theory and practice to examine in depth the core issues and popular movements of our time. You can find some of our content at sdonline.org. That's Socialism and Democracy. Several of our producers are very involved in that publication, and we hope you will be too. And also here on Shelter and Solidarity, we hope you will join us. Your voices are crucial to our ongoing uh, conversation, and I want to thank everyone for being here and wish you a very good night. <laughs>